cities burning, of demonstrations in the streets, students on the march. And so something positive about America was really welcomed at that time. That's former Washington Secretary of State Sam Reed talking about his memories of the U.S. landing on the moon. Sam and other listeners will express their thoughts on that incredible feat 50 years ago this month. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. 1969, what an incredible year. The Beatles played their last concert on a rooftop in London. Boeing literally rolled out the 747. The first Concorde flight took place in France. And of course, there was Woodstock. The summer of 1969 also included the tragic murders of Sharon Tate and the La Biancas, led by cult leader, Charles Manson, it shook L.A., and the entire country. Locally, the Pilots, as they were known then, played their one and only Major League Baseball season in Seattle. And then, of course, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to set foot on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission that also included Michael Collins. Do you remember where you were and what you were thinking when Neil Armstrong took the first step on the moon? Do you have any thoughts about the accomplishment now? Have your views changed since the actual moonwalk in 1969? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your impressions, and I will play them on the air. That's 425-653-1166. Now, the Seattle Museum of Flight has an exhibition through September 2nd called Destination Moon, the Apollo 11 Mission. The original Apollo capsule is on display. I visited the Museum of Flight and Apollo exhibition and was very, very impressed with all the history and the artifacts that were on display. I have been to the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and the Museum of Flight on Boeing Field is on par or even exceeds what you see at the Air and Space Museum. That is no small accomplishment because the Air and Space Museum is very, very impressive. Dr. Mark Del Beccaro, Chief Medical Officer with Seattle Children's, will be joining us today. Dr. Beccaro's specialty is pediatric care. Back with my impressions of the moonwalk and my interview with Dr. Mark Del Beccaro in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. This is Frank Fiorino. I can remember, like it was yesterday, calling my dad from Cape Kennedy when the Saturn rocket took off of the moon on July 16, 1969. I was a young staff director for ABC Radio News, and this was my first major assignment. Dad, I yelled into the phone. It was like watching the Empire State Building leave the ground. Wow! And when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon and said, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, it, it felt like science fiction to me. In a way, 
I wish humanity still had that sense of awe and wonder. We seem to take so much for granted nowadays. I was only a spectator 50 years ago, but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Hey, I still have my first Man on the Moon memorial stamp proudly displayed. Wondrous. Thank you. Dr. Mark Del Picaro, Chief Medical Officer with Seattle Children's, is on the line. His specialty is pediatric care. He also works in emergency medicine where he says he gets to play with the kids, treat their broken bones, close their lacerations, and relieve a family's concern or help shepherd them through a difficult health crisis. What's the difference between treating and researching children's diseases as opposed to adult diseases, and how did he decide to go into pediatric care? The one that's certainly the most visible in our system right now is the work that's being done with our cancer immunotherapy program. There are other places in the world doing it. I think we're definitely in the lead in that, and we certainly have more trials open than I think other any other place. I can remember vividly as a first-year intern having to start an IV in a, in a cancer child who's going through chemotherapy. Essentially, cancer treatment now is giving people enough poison to kill any growing cell in their body and hope that they survive, and we wipe out the cancer without killing them. And we've been doing a version of that for decades. It, it hasn't really fundamentally shifted. We've gotten you know, newer drugs, and they've certainly targeted things in a, in a better way, and the survival has gone up. To be on the cusp of where we're using people's cells and, and um, teaching them how to attack their own cancer cells, and potentially being able to put people in remission, either long-term or cure them, without going through that, to me, is like a, a major fundamental shift. I think the closest thing I would say that analogous to that, that we have done amazing work on, and unfortunately there's a backslide right now, is in vaccines. When I was a resident, we would take care of kids with horrible cases of meningitis and sepsis. Do you know what I mean by those two words? Meningitis, I'm familiar with, but was it septus? Sepsis. Yeah, sepsis. it's where you get it. It's same idea. It's overwhelming bacterial infection in your bloodstream, and it just destroys all your organs, and you die of that, um, versus meningitis, which is where the infection is heaviest located in your in your brain and spinal canal, and, and it. Yes. it kills you that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, I thought kids die of those things like all the time when I was a resident and now it's incredibly rare like you just don't see it and in fact some diseases that I had to take care of as a kid you know modern people don't they have no clue what that is there seems to be an anti-vaccine sentiment in some quarters of this country that's growing and I'm certainly concerned about that what's your thoughts about that people can get out on any kind of website or FaceTime or whatever, and they they make themselves an expert and they convince other people that they know something. Once people convince themselves of something, it becomes almost like a religious belief, and then you can't argue them out of it with facts. Like, facts become meaningless at that point. And the number of people that are not vaccinating is just astounding. 
Could we see something of a resurgence of some disease that will come back in a big way that we thought we eradicated because of this um, kind of attitude? Well, we've already seen quite a few measles and whooping cough or pertussis outbreaks in this country and locally in, in Washington state. Luckily, they're still a, a minority. What's saving them is the fact that almost everybody still does it. Because let's just say we reach some tipping point, and I don't, you know, I would have to talk to the CDC or something, find out what that is. If there's enough people immunized, but the people that are not immunizing are being saved by the fact that there's not enough germs around to infect their kids. If we drop below a certain level with standard vaccines and their kids started dying of these things or they ended up in our ICUs because of some of those illnesses, that's what happens. Believe me, they would change their belief. <laughs> right. But that's and, what it's going to take. Hopefully we don't hit that tipping point. But if we do, that's what it's going to take to get us back on center, I suppose. Yeah. And I can tell you, it has helped move some states a little bit more to not allowing completely free pr personal exemption from sending their kids to school. It takes a big thing for people to do that. There was a big measles outbreak, if you remember, a year or two ago related to Disneyland visit. Yes, and that helped. That. And that actually helped California governments to tighten up the personal exemption rules. Vaccines and clean water have done more to extend the life of people than almost anything we've ever done. The next one is food. So when we say, what are we, what are we doing, though, that's sort of unique in, the, in our end of the wood, I would say it's cancer immunotherapy. I would also say that one of our great successes and secondary challenges is now, because of a lot of things we've done, Kids with different kinds of either congenital or other things that used to not allow them to survive now live, you know, well into their teens, 20s, 30s, and even beyond. Kids with cystic fibrosis, for instance, and things like that. And my belief is probably maybe not in my lifetime, but in, in some point, they'll be able to find things like kids with diabetes and kids with cystic fibrosis and some other things, and they'll figure out, oh, you have this specific gene defect. I think within, you know, not too long, there'll be a number of those that they'll say, oh, you're missing this specific gene sequence, or you have this specific gene that's not working correctly. And gene therapy to fix those things has already started in some illnesses, and I think that will progress a lot. Right. And isn't that my limited knowledge in this field, but what I read really gene therapy is the key to eradicating diseases. Otherwise, you're just treating it, as you said, poison treating poison. I think for many diseases, that is true. There are some things, however, that are not that way. There are still, unfortunately, trauma and accidents still kill a lot of children. And in fact, in adolescence, death by gun is, one, is in the top five causes of death, believe it or not. We don't approach it in any way, shape, or form like that because of the whole political issue. Certainly. It is, in, in, in medicine, this is one of the biggest views of a public health emergency. I guarantee you, if children were dying of any other illness at the rate they die of gun violence, that society would be totally on top of 
getting rid of it. A lot of the teenagers that die from this die from self-inflicted from suicide. Isn't like 60% of people with guns die of suicide? That's the number one yeah. cause. And, and a huge portion of that are also elderly people. What advantages do adults have over children in receiving quality health care? Whether Medicare is good or bad, the good thing about it is is that all adults over age 65 have some level of uniform health care coverage. So it doesn't matter whether you live in rural Wyoming or New York City or you know Alabama or whatever. Kids, however, Medicaid rules and funding vary wildly across state, and their access to health care is wildly different across places. And again, I say the thing that, well, if you want a healthy adult, you need a healthy kid. That's Dr. Mark Del Beccaro, Seattle Children's Chief Medical Officer. I certainly learned a lot in this interview. I hope you did too. Well, this is former Secretary of State Sam Reed. What an exciting, thrilling incident that was to have America land somebody on the moon and have Neil Armstrong be able to communicate all the way back uh, back to America at that time. It was thrilling also because we needed it so much. This was a time of Vietnam, of civil rights movement, of cities burning, of demonstrations in the streets, students on the march. And so something positive about America was really welcomed at that time. It was a tonic that was needed for all of us in the United States. Fifty years ago, I was six years old. I was stationed with my family in the Philippine Islands during the Vietnam War, and I never forgot that walk on the moon. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Growing up, I was always a big fan of the space program, building scale models as a kid, launching miniature rockets, and collecting Life magazine with photos from the Mercury flights and the Gemini missions. In July of 1969, I was a week shy of my 17th birthday. I had my driver's license and my first girlfriend. I was at Jill's house for the early morning launch. I was home for the landing and the small step for mankind. It was a great time. We could do anything. We've learned so much. We need to go back. We need to keep exploring. This is Bill Boaz in Tucson. that I slept through Neil Armstrong's landing on the moon. I was in basic training in Blackman Air Force Base in Texas and exhausted, and I thought, if he does it once, somebody else can do it the second time, and I needed the rest. Therefore, even though there was a TV available in another barracks, I chose sleep over Neil. And to this day, I regret it, but I felt rested at the time. I was watching TV like everyone else, absolutely captivated, There was a sense of 
great joy and jubilation. And uh, I sense that the country felt a victory over the Russian space program. Thanks very much, Kay White. There was a movie in 2018 that was critically acclaimed. It was called First Man. The movie First Man is about the U.S. space program that began in the 1950s and reached its peak in July of 1969 when Neil Armstrong touched down on the moon and became the first man to do that. Now, as a teenager, I wasn't really enamored with it as much as I think I should have been. And this movie really brought it back what an incredible undertaking this was, the precision it took place to accomplish this incredible feat. And a lot of the astronauts died along the way. And Neil Armstrong knew many of them. As a matter of fact, he almost perished several times in his time as an astronaut and before. And the other thing is how primitive the shell of the capsule looked. I mean, rivets were kind of just holding it together. It was shaking in space. I mean, it was not a smooth ride. Now, I think if you look back at that, we all look at the incredible technological achievements that were made by going to the moon in the space program. And the fact that we are benefiting from those investments now with the technology gains that were made during that time. But maybe what was lost in this is that certainly there was a major part of that to reach out to the heavens. But really, the main thrust of going to the moon was to simply beat the Soviet Union. But what I submit is that all of these discoveries and advancements will not be remembered 500 years from now. But landing on the moon like Christopher Columbus crossing the Atlantic 500 years ago, will be remembered. In these times of real difficulty that we're going through, we're struggling as a country, what direction we're going in. This is just a flashback from not too long ago as to what this country achieved, and it really brought that to the forefront. I think you will really enjoy it. Hey, Paul, this is Pete Delani. While I was in high school, I was a columnist for the Everett Herald, and they hired me a farmer graduation. So I was working in the newsroom on July 20th, 1969, and attending Everett Community College when the U.S. planted a flag on the moon. My primary job at the Herald was writing the daily tide table and writing obituaries for military from Snohomish County who had been killed in Vietnam. In the wake of a brutal 1968 election, followed by President Nixon's bombing sorties over Cambodia, The moon landing was just a headline to me. In 1969, I was stressed about getting money together for college, transferring credits to Central in Ellensburg without losing my draft uh, student deferment, and my new job as a sports writer for the Daily Record there. To me, and in view of everything else that was going on in 1969, making a footprint on the moon paled in comparison. Landing on the moon was a high point then, that was dimmed by that foreign war, protest marches, and racial unrest. Looking back on 1969 makes the era of Trump seem a bit tame. Seattle's Boeing Field 
has on loan from the Smithsonian Destination Moon, an exhibition about the Apollo 11 mission. I stopped by the exhibit earlier this week, and I got to say, it was very worthwhile. The actual space capsule that returned the three Apollo astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin, is on display right there at the end of the tour. Rather incredible. Very primitive looking to me as I see it for real, as opposed to seeing it on grainy film from 50 years ago. And the space rover vehicle, talk about primitive. I mean, this thing was, let's say you don't have the body of the car, it's just the chassis. And then it looked like it had two lawn chairs on it. That was about the extent of what the rover looked like up close. It kind of looked like a very comfortable vehicle to have on the golf course. The tour provides a history of the space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the creation of NASA, the launch, the landing, and everything else in between. Now, as I was standing under the command module Columbia, there was a visitor who looked very knowledgeable to me about the space race. I just felt that he probably knew a lot about this, and I guessed right, because he did know a lot about the space program. He's a retired employee from Boeing. I just asked him to describe what he knew about the space capsule. So this is the part, the only part of the launch to the moon that returned to Earth. This is what brings the astronauts back. It's their home on the way to the moon and returns them back to Earth when they come back from the moon. There were some difficulties when they came back. Uh, Not in this particular capsule. It performed very well. So on some of the other flights, there were some problems, especially Apollo 13. But uh, Apollo 11, which was the one that supported the first landing on the moon, uh, is the capsule you see here, and it, uh, it performed very well. What do you think we don't or should appreciate more about the moonwalk that we may not today as much as we should looking back? Probably just the difficulty and the technological achievement for the time to get there at that time with, with the pressure of the Cold War pushing it and the travel, the, all the other things that were going on at the time to have a national commitment like this and actually be able to carry it through, the tremendous risks that were taken. Uh, the astronauts were all test pilots. They were used to risk. That's what they did in their everyday life as part of uh, being a test pilot. So for them, they thought the risk was all in a day's work. But it really pushed the envelope on, uh, on basically what, what you're doing when you're testing something out for the first time. Do you think Americans appreciate or even the world appreciate what was accomplished during that time? Is there some of that going on? Or? Uh, definitely. A lot of that technology uh, you know, sprung off of this. It at least accelerated a lot of the technology that we have today uh, coming into being, computer usage and computer miniaturization, that sort of thing. But, uh, but uh, it was definitely appreciated at the time. I think we had uh, you know, the, a lot of people involved there had been involved with World War II and the tremendous technology advances that happened at that time. Uh, not only with the battle stuff, but with bringing on electronics, things like radar and stuff, and the transistor came out of all of that, and we all know what transistors led to, so this was all a part of that big push. And the competition with the Cold War, you know, is the thing that really drove us to do it. We don't have that kind of a drive and a national commitment or focus on one particular thing like that at this time, so... Yeah, we've definitely become a lot more complacent with technology and we're expecting a lot more out of it. Interesting that you should mention technology as really the byproduct or direct descendant of what we did going to the moon. Really the push was to beat the Russians to the moon. 
Well, that's the thing that caused them to set the target for the moon, as they wanted something that they could get ahead of the Russians in on the technology. Uh, space was a new frontier at that time. When the Russians ordered Sputnik, it was a question of uh, who was going to control space. It was seen as a th threat. If you had satellites in orbit that were uh, carrying nuclear devices, those could be deorbited at any time with very little warning. By the time you know, noticed it wasn't coming around in its next orbit, it was because it was almost in your back pocket. What did Boeing's involvement have to do in the space program? What did they contribute? Well, if you look at the front end of the destination moon where you come in out here, they have the uh, rover, they have the uh, lunar orbiter that Boeing were involved with, they were the contractor for the Saturn V first stage, and then uh, later in the program they became systems integrator for the whole program, so all the hardware that had to come together for that. Again, I highly recommend a visit to the Museum of Flight in Seattle and visit the Destination Moon exhibit. It runs through September 2nd. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Dr. Mark Del Beccaro and all of the guests who participated in letting us know what they were doing and thinking when man first touched down on the moon. Throughout the month of July, I will continue asking that question. What were you doing and what were you thinking when Apollo 11 touched down on the moon on July 20, 1969? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your reflections. Please limit your comments to about 45 seconds or so. I want to get as many people on the air as possible. That number again is 425-653-1166. First Man, starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, it's a must-see. It goes through the history of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo program. And I suggest you watch this just to get a real sense of the entire program that culminating with man stepping on the moon. Voices of Experience will return next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. and will be repeated Friday at 1.30 p.m. If you want to hear Voices of Experience show for the last couple of years, Google KKNW, then click on to Podcast, and then click on to Voices of Experience, and you will be there. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you want to talk to me about anything as it relates to this show, you can call me at 206-459-5536. 206-459-5536. Once again, I will leave you with the voice of President John F. Kennedy making the case for going to the moon. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked.